Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, everyone. I've got a good one for you today. We are talking about the nitty gritty details of buyer personas and how they work in your content marketing. I'll be talking to Paul Avery, who I had the pleasure of meeting at a CNEN magazine event uh, for science marketers in Washington back in August. Last week, as you might know, I was at the ACPLS annual meeting. That's an event for sales and marketing folks in the life sciences. I recorded four podcasts while I was there, including a live panel discussion that I led on using data for marketing in the life sciences. Really interesting stuff. And I'll be trickling all those podcasts out intermingled with the usual uh, guests over the next few months. Amazingly, these events are showing up all over the place now, which is great. I see a lot of momentum in our industry in terms of raising the bar for marketing. So the next one, um, actually, I've got a couple coming up, but the next one I want to tell you about right now is I will be speaking March 5th and 6th in San Diego at the Science Marketing Lab alongside a lot of folks that I admire. Um, Andy Bertera from New England Biolabs, who's been on this podcast. Um, David Chapin from Forma Life Science Marketing uh, will be there. Nick Oswald from Bite Size Bio. Laura Brown from Covalent Bonds. All those folks have been on the podcast. They're going to be at this event and speaking. I highly recommend you check it out. And who doesn't want to go to San Diego in March, right? So uh, go to sciencemarketinglab.com. Look at that. And now let's jump right into it. Paul Avery is the co-founder and managing director of Biostrata, a specialist life science marketing agency offering traditional outbound marketing, content marketing, lead nurturing, inbound, and context marketing. Paul, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thank you for having me, Chris. Uh, I'm very proud to be here. This is going to be fun. Um, Today we're going to talk about buyer personas. So for all the listeners out there doing content marketing it's really important to get this right and um, while it's fairly straightforward i think we're going to learn a few things that's going to make it easier today so first of all paul tell us what is a persona and why is it important to define them yeah and i think it's a really good question because i I suspect in some respects we've always used buyer personas and audience personas in our marketing but with the advent of content marketing, putting the buyer at the center of everything we do has become even more important. So within the context, at least of how we work with them at Biostrata, a buyer persona is like an idealized representation of a customer segment that you're targeting as part of your marketing and sales efforts. As we're using sort of content and inbound marketing to try and attract customers through content that sort of acts as a magnet, we're trying to put the customer or the audience at the center of everything that we create so that we're talking about the things that they care about, perhaps even more than the things that we care about, trying to find that overlap between their passions and what they're interested in and then our expertise, products and services. And then if we have this buyer persona defined in terms of what those things are that those buyers are really interested in, it just makes it much, much easier to produce the content. Nice. Yeah, so we're really trying to to know the person that we're speaking to for any content we're trying to make. 
And of course, uh, because life science products can be complicated and there could be multiple people involved in a decision process on the other side, it's easy to imagine creating many personas for your content marketing, but that can be a challenge if it gets too large. So how do you decide on the right number and who those are going to be? Yeah, it's, I think it's a really good question as well because it's the answer's complex and it's and it can be difficult to make that decision. So I think for us, it's about trying to figure out where that Goldilocks zone is in terms of having the right, just the right number of personas. And to sort of give an example of that, the more specific that you can be in each of your personas, the more effective you're going to be in your marketing because you're going to be speaking about a topic that really resonates with that group of people. So if we think of an example, maybe a, a scientist uh, is the buyer persona. We're targeting a scientist. Yes, there are going to be core things that are important to all scientists. But if we look at a scientist working within industry versus, say, pharma, then there are going to be different goals, challenges and pain points for each of those groups. So if we can already make that differentiation, we're going to be much more effective in the content we're producing and the messages that we're sending out and the stories that we're telling if we speak to those two groups independently. Of course, if you then take, say, an academic scientist, you can break that down into maybe a PhD student, postdoc, principal investigator, lab manager, lab technician. Um, and again, because their roles within the academic um, research institutes are different and they have different goals and challenges and pain points, if we can tailor our content and messages down at that level, then our content's going to be even more effective. But of course, we need to balance that with actual practical reality. If we get too... Um, down in the weeds with our with our buyer personas and we end up with say 30 40 50 buyer personas that we're going to have to produce unique content for each of them effectively we're going to destroy our marketing program our content marketing program before we start because we'll be overwhelmed by the simple number of buyer personas that we need to that we need to speak to so fundamentally it's about getting that goldilocks zone it's not having one or maybe two personas that are really, really general and therefore we can't really say anything interesting to them because it's not really going to resonate. But we also don't want 30, 40, 50 buyer personas where we make it far too hard for us to produce um, any meaningful content across such a wide variety of audiences. But let's say, I mean, um, I'm just thinking, so you, let's say we have four or five and then I know you do inbound marketing and do uh, sort of the HubSpot process. I mean, I think HubSpot's part of your process often. And then they talk about four different stages of the buyer's journey. So that's a little different content for each of the personas there. And it, it multiplies pretty quickly. How do you, how do you manage that? Do you sometimes create uh, one piece of content that you know is good for more than one persona or, or what? Yeah, that's another really good question. I think that once you start doing the multiplication like that and you've got 20 personas and you need to do a piece of content across four stages of the buying journey for each, that's many, many pieces of content. Ideally, there probably are going to be unique, four unique pieces of content minimum for each of those buyer personas. But what tends to happen when you start to put them together is you can see commonalities emerging in terms of the goals, challenges, pain points, frustrations, um, common issues that those people are facing. And so you may have, say, five or six buyer personas, but you might actually be able to see 
once you've got down into those, that there's some key themes for subsets of them. So it might be that you can use uh, a key ebook or a, a series of blog posts that will actually talk to three of those buyer personas effectively because it's something that's core uh, and is important to all of them. Um, another way that you can leverage those commonalities is to, say, produce an ebook around a topic. Um, where the title of that ebook is very focused on a specific buyer persona. So let's say um, how PhD students can ensure that they have the best chance of getting published in high impact journals. Um, and then do another ebook, which is how postdocs can ensure that they can get published in high impact journals, which is probably a very similar ebook, but with a different title, a different introduction perhaps into those ebooks. They'll feel very customized for those audiences, but the core content that underpins them is, is the same. And so you get some efficiencies in terms of producing the content there. So that tends to work quite well at the awareness stage, so right up at the top of the funnel. As you move down through the consideration and the decision stages of the funnel, things can get a little simpler because fundamentally when we get down towards the bottom of the funnel, we're starting to introduce our technology, our solution to the buyer. We're probably going to do that in a similar way for the postdocs, the PhDs, um, or for these related buyer personas that perhaps all fall under the, the class of scientist. Actually, when it comes to the nitty gritty of the service or product that we're offering them, the key benefits are probably the same. And so a single case study might work for all of those groups. So what that means is your content funnel looks a lot like your sales funnel in that you probably have quite a lot of customized content at the top of the funnel because you've got lots of, uh, you know, a series of buyer personas, but you've got less content as you move down the funnel because your consideration stage offers will work across them and perhaps your decision stage offers, your pricing comparisons, your buying guides, they might work for all of your buyer personas for that particular service or product because ultimately the goal at that stage is to get them to buy. Right. I, I really like that and I'll just point out that it's completely fair in content marketing to just change the title on a piece and that specificity, you know, um, how to, how does a postdoc ensure high impact journal publication and how does a graduate student do that? Um, that level of specificity probably creates more conversions. Absolutely. And as long as they get value out of the piece of content, as long as they don't feel duped into reading an ebook they've already read, you're not going to have any issues. All you're going to do is help attract the right people to the right piece of content. Exactly. All right. So now let's talk about um, building the persona. How do you decide to uh, what information is important to know about this general description of a group of people turned into a single person and what, what information that sometimes people talk about with respect to personas isn't important. Yeah, it's, um, so for us, basically, we've, we've tried to systemize some of this process to make it easier for us to collect this information. And what it tends to mean is that in 80% of cases, or perhaps a better way to look at it is 80% of the information that we collect on every project is is around the same things. And then there are certain buyer personas, certain market areas where there are certain questions or pieces of information that we probably just don't need to consider. And so the way that we look at that is to break it down into four key areas. So the first um, subset of content, the uh, information that we look to collect is effectively the who part. So this is where we try and get under the skin of exactly 
who these people are. So this might include things like thinking about what their job title is, their function within um, the business or the organization in which they work, um, thinking very much here in terms of, of, of B2B or I guess the scientist to scientist marketing that we hear sometimes shared uh, as a term in our industry, um, their career path to that to that particular point, what's their background in terms of their science training or do they have business training? Did they end up in their role because they were a scientist or because they were a business person and therefore that within the life sciences, are they a business person learning science or are they a scientist learning business? Um, so that kind of background job function type stuff. Um, and then layered on top of that, often we try and look at some sort of demographic information just to get a feel for what the rest of their life looks like in terms of is is their job their life? Are they working sort of 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. every day? Or do they need to balance that type of stuff with a very active social life or family commitments? Because um, that under helps us to understand the richer context of the pressures that they're under. And then finally, uh, within that kind of who part is the the kind of communication preferences. Are they uh, introverted or extroverted? Are they likely to be happy to, to receive sales calls? Are they the type of person who's gonna go looking for information online um, under their own terms? What types of trade magazines do they read? Are they active on certain social media channels? All that type of information that helps us to collect the, the who part, and that's kind of section one of four. Section two is then sort of the what part, like what are they trying to do and, and what can we help them with? So this kind of is three fundamental parts that I've touched on a bit earlier in terms of what are their goals and objectives in terms of what they're trying to achieve within their role and usually trying to align that, starting to align that with the types of services and products that we offer. So that kind of gets subdivided sometimes into their big picture goals. I'm trying to cure cancer and then the goals within the actual project that they're working on, which is I need to find a way of testing my cell model um, so that I can see if this particular drug's going to work or I need an assay technology that's going to allow me to do all this stuff much faster than I can now because at the moment my project's going to take a year and I need to complete it in three months. Then we try and reflect those goals into the challenges. What is it that's fundamentally holding those people back from achieving those goals? We try and document some of those. And then finally, we look at the nitty gritty frustrations because it's often, even though people have these big picture goals and they have these big picture challenges, quite often it's the nitty gritty frustrations that motivate people to change. If it's the fact that I've just done another mini prep and, and the thing hasn't worked again and I've just spent two, three days doing this, I've gone to measure the amount of DNA in my, in my tube and there's nothing there. There's nothing more frustrating than that. I'm using a kit that I'm trying to rely on to deliver results. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it does. And of course, there's all these different technologies and tools that we're using in the laboratory every day. Many of which are fantastic but it's the nitty-gritty frustrations that get in the way that can often, often annoy us and most of those are because that's where technology's got to so far and if we were to find out that there was a cool technology that had been invented that actually overcame that barrier we'd probably get really excited about it so that's sort of the three what bits that we collect um, then the next section is kind of the how so that once we know what they're trying to achieve and what's holding them back, we're starting to think now how we're going to start to position our solution. So now we're moving a little bit more in towards how we're going to present that. So we're starting to think about, okay, if we were going to present our solution to them, 
what would it look like and and how can we how can we best serve them so we're maybe looking here at the three unique selling points that we can that in the technology or or service or product that that fits against those goals objectives and challenges and really trying to think about how we're going to align them and this is the part then where our brand core messages our core unique selling points start to fit with the needs and challenges goals of the buyer persona and then finally we're looking at things like common sales objections common questions that they might have because content marketing is such a fantastic opportunity to produce content around those objections and those common questions that that prospects have during our sales process if we can answer them in our content before they even speak to our sales team it's just going to be much faster and easier for our sales teams to close those deals and that means that sales cycles are going to drop you know the amount of time it takes to get someone through a deal is going to drop because they'll have answered all their questions or at least most of them hopefully by the time that that happens and in the, in order to do that we're usually collecting a number of proof point items that we would use to overcome those common objections and common questions and so that, that makes up the majority of what we the information we'd like to collect in a buyer persona um, because what we can then do is use that to reflect in different content pieces across that that funnel from awareness consideration down to decision nice so that's that's a very thorough description of how to build a persona i i really like uh, some of the things you said in there um so you put that together there's some sort of exercise that you're going through with your clients when you're doing that what do you do what do you recommend to make sure that after you've come up with these that those personas reflect reality how do you validate those things yeah, and, and this is key, right? Because we can come up with the coolest stuff in the world that we think is great, but if it doesn't reflect reality, then we're, we're not going to get results. And I guess fundamentally, it comes down to a couple of things. The first thing is how the persona's developed in the first place. So I think at one end, um, well, I guess if we think about the factors that influence the amount of time and energy and care that's put into producing personas, it usually comes down to how much time and resource um, a, t a team has to invest in developing them and so at the sort of faster um, end but probably less uh, accurate end is getting a, a group of your customer facing people together your internal people together this might be your sales teams your customer service teams operations teams product developers and then workshop it together to answer some of those questions that I highlighted previously um, that's going to give you a reasonable feel for the marketplace, but you're going to effectively bias that by what your internal perceptions are of what your customers care about. At the other end of the scale, in the perfect world where we have loads of time and resource to do these projects, we'd want to collect that information from the customers and prospects themselves. So through primary market research, where we actually ask them these questions and get them to feed back to us. So usually we do that through one-to-one -one interviews. And what we find is that anywhere between 6 to 12 for a reasonably specific market segment is enough to see common themes starting to appear so that you don't need to necessarily go worry about interviewing 40 or 50 people and then most clients for us at least usually fall somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum maybe we get to do a few interviews maybe it's mostly done with internal people but a couple of those internal people used to be customer side as it were and can actually think think like the company's customers if you're not able to do the level of primary research that we would ideally do during the persona development phase you can at least then reality check them afterwards by 
asking a friendly customer or two to review them and say, hey, do you think this really kind of talks to what you're trying to achieve in your in your job function? Is this is this the things that keep you up at night? Are we way off base here or does this kind of sound right? And if you've got that relationship, you can potentially have quite a good conversation there. As I mentioned, you might have internal people who've been customer side. If they're relatively new to your organization and it wasn't that long ago that they were customer side, they can probably give you a decent feel. Um, you can even do things like do some social media listening, try and find out what people are blogging about or writing about on, lit- uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter to, and, and maybe even tools like ResearchGate to see if people are actually talking about the things that you identified in your buyer personas. If it's a real challenge that they're facing, you'd expect them to be going onto some of these sites and saying, hey, this thing is really bothering me. Does anybody have any recommendations that could help me? I like it. So we've been talking this whole time about building a persona, how many, why it's important and so on. But what is, how do we actually use them? And then when you're working with a company, what is it, what kind of behavior in that company shows you that they've really adopted them and are using them seriously? Yeah, I think, um, so for us, what we really are looking to do is actually to create a strategic messaging document. That for us is what a buyer persona is. So at least as an agency, it is fundamentally an excellent piece of briefing material for us to give to our science and creative copywriters and say, when you're writing, this is the audience that you need to have in mind. So whether it's a blog post or an ebook, having that that strategic document always printed out next to you when you're writing every piece of content for that client helps to ensure that you always have their goals and their challenges and their pain points in mind, but you also have the key USPs that we can, or at least in this case, the client can provide to help overcome those problems. So you get to infuse that into all your content. Ideally then, to be honest, maybe that's a document that you can use to infuse into your whole marketing and messaging strategy. It shouldn't just be in your content marketing, but it should perhaps be some of the first things that a, that a, a visitor sees when they land on your on your website. Is this something that should be you know, front and center in your internal communication so that everybody within the organization knows who we're trying to provide value to and, and how we're going to do it? And I guess a, another key point then is to try and use those buyer personas within the sales team so that when sales are interacting with prospects, they're speaking the same language that marketing's been speaking on it on the website and in, in content marketing efforts. So there's no disconnect in the experience for the customer. They read a piece of content on on um, on your blog or they download an ebook and if eventually end up speaking to a salesperson, the salesperson speaking about all the same challenges and goals and pain points and benefits because it's all encapsulated. Um, within this document. Now, that's of course the ideal within small marketing and sales teams that can be easier to achieve with big organizations that have sales teams working in different areas across the globe. Of course, that becomes much more challenging. And I, it's how to know when you've really succeeded in having people flip into this buyer persona driven mindset. The the best way I can think of to describe it is actually how you described it where we had a previous conversation on this, Chris, is when people start to actually use the name of the personas internally, right? They're talking about Biotech Barry um, or Pharma Polly or PhD student Paul, and that, that's how they see their customers. And when everybody's using that language and referring to the buyer personas, I think you, uh, you know that you've, you've made, managed to instigate that change and made real progress. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen that happen, and it, and it really does make a difference. You, it makes every conversation easier within the team because they they all it's a shortcut, and so they talk about this like it's a real person, and everybody knows what the makeup of that person is, what their um, preferences are, and so on, and yeah, it really speeds things up. So, um. We've talked about building them and defining them. And of course, we talked about how you might have multiple personas within a target account. Give us an example of a couple different pieces of content, how those might be different for two personas within the same account. Yeah. So I, I, thinking about this and trying to think about some real life projects, I think quite often we're working with technology providers, right, that are defining new assays or, or new screening technologies or whatever it may be. And so quite often those technologies are going to be, be relevant in a number of different laboratory types. Um, fundamentally, the people using them, especially if there's something fairly complex like chromatography systems, they're going to be in highly skilled scientists. But whether they're working in a food lab or uh, a clinical laboratory or an academic laboratory, they're you know their challenges and their pain points etc are going to differ so if we were looking at a uh, some sort of analysis instrument that's being used in a clinical lab to screen clinical samples versus an academic lab we can already start to define there people working in a clinical lab versus an academic lab because within the clinical lab they're probably using that technology for high throughput analysis they're trying to get through a number of samples a day their main pressure is going to be producing high quality, reliable um, analyses as fast as possible because they've got a, probably got a backlog of clinical samples. So the pressures that are being placed upon them are about speed. They might be about um, accuracy in terms of they have a certain percentage of of samples that they need to get an accurate result on when you know assessed by a second validating technology, for example. You look at then how that instrument's going to be used in an academic setting and maybe speed um, and percentage accuracy, maybe they have different levels of importance, especially speed. I'm sure we all want our uh, analyses to be 100% accuracy, uh, accurate where they can be. But within that academic environment, maybe throughput and speed become less important and maybe it's actually more about flexibility because if you're working in an academic lab where you're trying to do many different experiments and maybe in three months time you'll have another cool idea and you want to do a different type of experiment you want a tool that's going to be able to adapt with you whereas in the clinical lab maybe you've got three or four key tests that you're doing that you need to just do as high throughput and already when you start to make that split you can then see how a biopersona of scientist or um, you know, instrument user is not going to be a powerful way to speak to those two audiences. If you split them down in the ways I've just described, you can start producing content um, that will speak effectively to them. And uh, I guess a, um, an idea for an awareness stage offer for the for the academic scientist is, you know, how to select a technology that will be flexible enough to allow you to do whatever experiment you can think of this year. And then for the clinical lab, it's how to select a technology with minimal downtime um, and fast throughput. Um, and instantly they're going to speak much more effectively to those two um, biopersonas. Beautiful. All right. What about results? Where have you seen personas used um, and really make an impact on business results? Yeah. And I guess fundamentally, this is what it all comes down to. And one of the ways that we look at 
um, projects, all projects uh, with clients here at Biostrata is we always work back from the end goal and fundamentally because we work in, in the commercial area of science we're trying to convince people that a technology or a service or a product is a powerful tool for them to use so that they'll buy it. So we're always thinking in terms of getting new customers um, working back from there to maybe sales qualified leads, marketing qualified leads and leads. So when we're producing these content programs, it's with those KPIs in mind. We want to get more leads, we want to get better quality leads, and we want to see more of those leads turn into customers. And so what we've seen is, in order to produce lots of high quality leads, you need to produce, uh, through content marketing at least, you need to produce content that just almost reaches into that person's mind or soul and, and shows them, we understand what you're going through, and we are here to help educate, inform, entertain, and inspire you to be able to do the things that you need to do. And what we found is the more accurately our buyer personas re reflect who we're targeting, the more successful we're going to be. And so for us, the difference between having a persona and not can be can be massive in terms of the number of leads that we get, but also the quality of those leads. And then, of course, the more true to life our personas become and based on perhaps primary research with actual customers and actual prospects, again, the better results we see in terms of lead generation, quality of lead, and eventually, ultimately, the amount of those leads that go on to become customers. Fantastic. So, Paul Avery, I really enjoyed this conversation about personas. I think for people that have struggled building them or aren't yet using them but know they should be, this is a great primer. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Biostrata. Is there anything else you want to share with folks? Yeah, absolutely. If anybody wants to contact me to discuss buyer personas in more detail, they can email me, no problem at all. It's P Avery, so that's P A V E R Y at biostratamarketing.com or just search for, for Biostrata on Google and we'll pop up. Um, very happy to discuss uh, buyer personas and just content marketing in general, really. I'm a bit of a content marketing geek, so anybody who wants to talk through that, I'm always very happy to do so. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. If you're going to do content marketing, it's worth spending time on those personas and really get to know them. Hey, thanks for listening. This was episode 75. I had no idea this would go so far, but I've made so many friends. Some I have yet to meet face to face, but we're going to take care of that soon. Just by doing this podcast, you are a fantastic community and I really appreciate your feedback. So drop me a note on LinkedIn or send an email to chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com and tell two of your colleagues about the podcast if you please. I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.